Hey, last week we started a new sermon series entitled, Who Do You Think You Are? And in the series, we are looking at the biblical book, New Testament book of Ephesians together. And as we walk through that book, chapter by chapter, we're going to be talking a lot about identity. Because maybe more than any other book in all of the New Testament, Ephesians challenges us to think about the greatest identity marker that that is in our lives. It it challenges us to to, to proclaim and, and cling to and then live in and live out the truth that we are in Christ. That is who we are. And that one thing about us should actually inform and change everything else about us. Um, if, if asked, many of us would probably say to the question, who do you think you are? We'd probably give a list of, of our professional pursuits or our passions, maybe even our parental responsibilities. That's kind of who we are. But, but Jesus or uh, Paul would say, no, 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 you are so much more than that. You are a Christian. And that means so many things. And if you don't believe that, well, then everything else is going to kind of get out of tune and out of whack. And so we want to we figure out how does being in Christ change everything about us. Today, chapter 2, I'm excited to, uh, to share some thoughts with you. Imagine that I asked you to summarize a very complicated storyline, uh, something like the Lord of the Rings, uh, in one sentence. Could you, could you do it? Maybe it would be Harry Potter or even Star, or Star Wars movies. But could you do it? Could you take an overly complicated narrative with tons of characters and, and plot twists and could you summarize it in a single line? And I'm talking about one of those like run-on sentences that look more like a paragraph right, with comma and semicolon, all these different... No, 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 no. One sentence, handful of words. Could you summarize these storylines? Well, luckily for us, some people already have, or at least they've tried. Uh, The best one-liner I ever heard for Lord of the Rings is this. The powers of good and evil engaged in a cosmic battle over a piece of jewelry. For Harry Potter, I liked a story about a noseless guy who has an unhealthy obsession with the teenage boy. A lot of truth to that. And for Star Wars, this one takes the cake. Family drama on galactic proportions. So it's possible when it comes to these particular stories, it's possible to summarize them, right? To, to sum them up, break them down, condense them down a little bit. But what if I asked you to summarize the entire biblical narrative in one line? Could you do that? Could you take this book, which is actually 66 different books, and could you summarize it in a, in a handful of words? Well, again, others already have, or at least they've, they've tried. Back in the 16th century, during the time known as the Protestant Reformation, a group of visionary pastors and and leaders uh, tried to summarize the entire Bible. They came up with something called the five solas. Now, sola is a Latin phrase meaning alone. And so according to this group of leaders, they believe that these are the five truths that we as Christians live in, these and these alone. These five solas summarize everything in all the Bible. Here's what they came up with. We are saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, for the glory of God alone, as understood through Scripture alone. I would have said it in my best Latin accent. I I took a few semesters of Latin in college, but I, I didn't do very well, so I didn't do that for you. But these are the five solas. And according to these guys, this is how you would summarize sum up the entire biblical narrative. 
Now, nowadays, these are typically uh, associated with something called Reformed theology, which is an understanding of the Bible that focuses on predestination and God's sovereignty. But these are biblical before they are anything else. These are very true whether you are a Reformed theologian or not. And so I want us to look at a couple of these because I believe that not only are all five true, but there are three in particular that really apply to Paul's words in Ephesians chapter 2. There are three solas, if you were, that can summarize everything that we're going to talk about together this morning. Last week, as we read through chapter 1 of the book of Ephesians together, we learned that being in Christ means above everything else, you are saved. Verse 13, the good news that God saves you, Paul says. And as Paul is talking about this, we see just how excited he is getting, just how worshipful he is getting as he's describing this amazing truth to us, this reality, this fact that we are saved by God. Some would even argue that Ephesians chapter 1 is a song that Paul wrote. It's lyrics to a song because he's just so happy. He's just so overwhelmed with the fact that he is saved. That he's just got to sing about it. And so if that's true, the, the lyrics to this song, they're all about salvation. They're all about the fact that you are saved. But Paul doesn't just say that in chapter one. What he does is he says, being saved means so many other things for you. And here's the list of that. I mean, verse three means you're loved. It means you're blessed. In verse four, it means you're, you're chosen, holy, and, and blameless. Being saved in verse five, it says, it means you've been adopted. Verse seven, you are purchased. You are set free from sin. Verse seven, you are forgiven. You are redeemed. Verse 13, you are empowered by the Holy Spirit. All of this is what it means to be saved, to be in Christ. And you see why Paul just has to sing about it? He's just so excited about it. This is who you are. So when someone asks you, who do you think you are? It would be okay to give this list. In fact, it would be most appropriate to give this, because this is who you are in Christ. This is what it means to be a Christian. And in chapter two, Paul continues, but he talks about how did this come about? How did we find ourselves in such an amazing place, in such an honorable position? How did this happen to us? It's the first sola, it's grace. Everything about Christianity truly begins and ends with grace. Sola gratia, grace alone. Ephesians 2. As for you, you were dead in your transgressions and sins in which you used to live when you followed the ways of this world, the ruler of the kingdom of the air, the spirit who is now at work in those who are disobedient. All of us also lived among them at one time, gratifying the cravings of our flesh, following its desires and thoughts. Like the whole lot, we were by nature deserving of wrath. We've all been predispo uh, predisposed to believe, and, and for obvious reasons, that humanity, and especially you and I, we're, we're pretty good people. We've been predisposed to think that, that if left on our own, we, we would do all right. We are respectable. We're upright. We're, we're honorable. Now, sure, the evening news is stock full of examples proving otherwise. And sure, uh, we all have trouble keeping our New Year's resolutions, let alone all of God's laws. And sure, stories like Lord of the Flies seem to describe humanity pretty well, or at least our four toddlers when left alone in the room by themselves, right? But besides all of that, besides the news and besides our tendencies and besides little children and seeing what comes out of them in their worst moment, besides all of that, we kind of believe humans are pretty good folk, especially me. That's just, that's just our default setting. 
We're decent people, right? Well, Paul would say, no, no. If he, if he were to hear us say that, I think he would either laugh hysterically in our face or maybe cry hysterically in our face. He would say, decent? You think you're decent? No, 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 my friend. You are dead. Uh, how many Walking Dead fans do we have in here? Anybody watch that, that, that show? Okay, Walking Dead is one of those zombie apocalypse shows, right, where uh, humanity's running for their lives from these crazed creatures. Well, spoiler alert, sorry, I hate to do this to you, but everybody in the show is already sick. Everybody in the show is already diseased. Everybody's basically already dead. They just don't know it yet. The show starts off and you think that it's just the zombies who are bad off. Truth be told, everybody is in the same condition. Some show it and some know it and others do not. And that's what Paul is trying to say here. If he had Netflix and, and uh, uh, Walking Dead, he might make a reference to it here in Ephesians chapter 2. He would say, guys, on your own and by yourself, your default setting, it's, it's sickness. It's, it's death. You are diseased in some way. Our hearts, our minds, our spirits, it isn't good. It's actually pretty gross. It's ungodly. Paul says it this way back in the text that we are naturally disobedient at levels we can't even fully fathom. We follow and listen to the devil, willingly or unwillingly, that our sinful desires control us, enslave us, and thus we're as good as dead. Remember these D words. We are disobedient. We are disciples of the devil. We are enslaved to our desires. We are as good as dead. Have a great Sunday afternoon. We'll see you next week. <laughs> but that's a far cry from decent, isn't it? We would stand up and say, you know, I'm a pretty good guy. Paul would say, no, Thomas, you're just not. You're disobedient. You're a disciple of the devil. You're enslaved to your desires. You're a dead man walking. See, I think Paul's trying to communicate what really the entire biblical narrative communicates is that when left alone and apart from Christ, you and I are treacherous, adulterous, murderous, self-centered, hostile, deceitful infidels. We, we aren't naturally good. We are naturally goners. We're spiritually bankrupt. We are spiritually broken. We are spiritually inept. And before you get too defensive and email me all these explanations of how good of a person you are and all the good things you've done in this life or, or maybe just how hideous the guy next to you is so it makes you look better, before you try to justify yourself, just know this, that about 98% of the world who claims some sort of religion believes that humanity is pretty bad off. Because 98% of the religions out there teach us that human nature is pretty evil in and of itself. That something is wrong, that something is off. From the Buddhist eightfold path to the Hindu teaching of reincarnation to the Jewish commitment to the law, everybody kind of knows that when they spend enough time with themselves, they realize, I'm not as good as I think I am. Something's wrong here. If, anybody, if everybody were like me, ooh, the world would be a pretty bad place. And so you need to work hard. You need to fix yourself. You need to try again next life. You need to commit to the law. You need to do these eight things just right because something's wrong, something's broken, something's bad, and it needs to be fixed. It needs to be made better. Well, the good news for us is that as Christians, God's not only fully aware of how bad we are, but instead of putting the pressure on us to fix it, he imparts 
onto us his own goodness and perfection. Let me show you verses four through seven. But because of his great love for us, God, who is rich in mercy, made us alive with Christ. Even when we were dead in transgressions, it is by grace that you have been saved. And God raised us up with Christ and seated us with him in the heavenly realms in Christ Jesus in order that in the coming ages he might show his incomparable riches, the incomparable riches of his grace expressed in his kindness to us in Christ. See, Paul uses a word here to summarize what we were, who we were, and what happened to us, and now who we are. That word is grace. Sola gratia, grace alone. It is by grace you have been saved. It is by grace that that whole laundry list of things is true for you. It is by grace that you are loved. It is by grace that you are chosen. It is by grace that you are redeemed. It is by grace that you are forgiven. It is by grace that you are adopted. It is by grace that you are blessed. It is by grace that all of these things happen to you. Well, what do you mean by grace? Well, grace is this. It's God's completely undeserved loving commitment to us. Grace is God's completely undeserved loving commitment to us. Let's unpack that just a little bit. Completely undeserved. Well, yeah, because of our disobedience, our sinfulness, our rebellious nature. What we deserved was punishment. What we deserved was banishment. What we deserved was chastisement. That's what we deserved. We deserved God's wrath. We deserve his anger. We deserve his hostility. Because if you broke all of my stuff... If you turned your nose on all of my promises, if you disregarded every single one of my expressions of love, if you abused all of my family members, I'd show you my wrath. That's my right. And that's God's right as well. That's what we have done to him. And so we deserve that. But but the opposite now is true for us. God shows us grace. One author said it this way. Love that goes upward is worship. Love that goes outward is is affection and service, but love that stoops down into the mud is grace. And that's the kind of love that God shows to us. Because spiritually speaking, we were in that mud, we were in that muck, we were in that mire, we were, we were dead. Oh sure, you were, you were walking around, living a good life, thinking you were a good person, but inside, if we could have seen what was happening inside to your spirit, it was dark, it was dead, it was disobedient. And so you deserved one thing, but you received another. You received blessing, love, affection, adoption, redemption, forgiving the laundry list keeps going. You received all of that instead. That's grace. But here's the thing. As I was thinking about it this week, maybe, maybe this is not true for you, but I feel like it might be. You hear the word grace, especially if you've been in the church for any number of, of years, and you're kind of like, yeah, 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 I get it. Like we're saved by grace, 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 amazing grace. Thanks, Kim, for singing this song, right? I just, I'm just not sure you, you get it. I want grace to do to you what that pickled jalapeno pepper did to me that one day when I didn't know it was on my burger. I want grace to just slap you upside the face. Like, what was in that? I got to go to the restroom, right? I don't want grace to make you go to the restroom, but I want grace to do something to you. I want it to literally stop you dead in your tracks because that's what grace is supposed to do. You never get grace. You just, you just never get it. It gets you and it changes you. I've used different analogies and illustrations over the years to talk about grace. The judge, right, who instead of punishing you, pays you money because you broke the law, kind of an expression of grace. But I came across one recently 
that just, just stopped me in my tracks, and I want to share it with you this morning. Imagine that you have a 15-year-old son or daughter whom you love dearly. They are everything to you, and they're really starting to come into their own, really starting to become their own person. Well, tragically, one day you receive the devastating news that they were murdered. Late one night, they, they lost their life at the hands of another. Well, after a lengthy search, investigators find the killer. It's actually another 15-year-old kid who was abandoned as a child and who's lived as an orphan all of his life. He was living on the streets. He was high on meth at the time, and he shot your son to death in an act of rage and desperation. Now, in that moment, you have a couple of options available to you. You can take matters into your own hands, and you can kill the boy, or at least try to. That would be vengeance, would it not? You could sit back and allow the legal system to run its course and to decide the boy's fate, most likely life in prison. That would be justice. You could plead for the judge to take it easy on the boy and to give him the lowest level of punishment possible. That would be mercy. Or you could fight for the boy's release, completely forgive him of his heinous act, invite him into your home, adopt him as your own child, Shower him with all of your love and give him access to every single resource you have available to you. That's grace. You see the difference? You see how it doesn't even compare to all the others? And it's no wonder why grace is so hard for us to get because none of us would willingly or joyfully do that if put in that exact situation. But that's exactly what God does to us every single one of us, every single day. He takes a guilty, unbelieving, rebellious, murderous infidel who is as good as dead, who deserves to be punished, banished, and chastised, and he extends the gift of life. He extends the gift of love. He extends the gift of light. He gives to those who deserve death life. He invites us into his home. He adopts us as his own Instead of vengeance or justice or even mercy, he extends grace. Grace, grace, amazing grace. That's why you say that. But here's the thing. My fear is that most Christians don't live in or live out of grace. Most Christians still, for some reason, believe they're going to be harshly judged by like the, the, the principle of the universe at the end of their life. Like there's going to be a big assessment when you get to the gates. And it's going to sound something like this. Fitzpatrick, oh man, C minus at best. I mean, you thought you were so funny. You're not. You thought you were so smart. You're not. You thought you were really bald. You are, right? But we still think that there's going to be this, this judgment, this kind of assessment of, of our very worth, of, of our very lives. And we don't think that we're going to pass. We don't think the Lord's going to be very pleased with us. There's still going to be anger and frustration that's going to come upon us. Friends, that is just not true at all. Everything for us is grace. Always and forever. Listen to me. God's wrath and anger and frustration, the text says, the biblical text says, were poured out in their entirety on Jesus at the cross. All of his anger, all of his frustration, all of his hatred, everything that God was hit, he put on Jesus at the cross, and he was satisfied with that offering. That's where it all sat. 
and will sit forever. You were originally created in grace. You were born in grace. You were saved by grace. You were empowered by grace. One day you will be raised to life because of grace. It's not a one-time thing. It didn't just happen once for you, and then you move on from grace. Every moment of every day, Paul says in a different letter, is because of grace. I am who I am because of grace. Grace got a hold of me, Paul says in a different letter, and I've worked so hard, not I, but the grace of God. Even my own effort is grace. Everything I have is grace. Are you, are you following me? Are, are you getting the idea here? You aren't loved or saved because you are good enough. You are loved and saved because God is so good. And he will always be good enough. So you're saved by grace alone, sola gratia. Well, how do you get this grace? How, how, do, you, how do you receive this thing? I'm glad you asked, as Paul tells us next. Verses 8 through 10. It is by grace you have been saved, just in case you didn't hear me, and it's through faith. This is not from yourselves. This is a gift from God. It's not by works so that nobody can boast. We're God's handiwork, created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God prepared in advance for us to do. Paul goes on to say here that you received, you received grace through faith. You don't work for grace. You don't earn grace. You don't pay for grace. You don't purchase grace. You just believe in grace. You just accept the fact that it's true. You just get it by putting your trust in it. Let me, let me give you an example. It reminds me of the drawing contest that my daughter and I entered last holiday season. Uh, a certain dairy farm in the area was having a contest for their uh, seasonal eggnog bottles. And so they said, we'd love for the children to draw a picture of a, a, a festive cow uh, for the milk bottle or whatever. Well, I love to draw and so I got super excited, and I went to work. Well, I kind of forgot that it was supposed to be the kid that, that drew it. Anyway, overlooked that for several weeks. We submitted the drawing. Long story short, we won. I mean, Bailey won. My nine-year-old, because she did it all. I swear to you. And by all, I mean, I think she literally colored in the red on the hat. But she was the victor. They took her picture. This is actually the picture from the little Moo News catalog they put out every month. They interviewed her. She was online. They printed 10,000 eggnog bottles with her little cow on the front of it. She got all the credit for my cow. I drew that. I did that. That's mine. But the world thinks she did that. This analogy is really not applicable at all now that I think about it. But this, this is like grace through faith, okay? She received all of this blessing and didn't do anything. She just, she just kind of accepted it. Okay, we broke the rules. I probably should have come clean months ago. I'm sorry. I repent now, church. The bottles are already printed. But she received all of this because of another. She received all of that blessing because of her father. And haven't we received all of the blessing because of our father? It's really all about what he did for us. And we just get to stand there at the end and say, thanks. We just get to accept it. We just get to receive it. That's all you have to do. It's grace through faith. You just have to trust that he's that good. You have to trust that the gift is real. 
The Greek word for faith in this text has connotations of a pledge. So it's grace through a pledge. It's grace through this firm commitment to these truths. We aren't just talking about like believing in grace in the same way you believe a man walked on the moon. Like, yeah, I believe that happened, but it has no impact in my life at all. Who cares? No, no, no. We're talking about believing in it so much that you are literally connected to it in a way. This faith, this biblical faith has, has a sticky, adhesive quality to it. When you believe in this grace, you're not believing in an idea. You are connecting yourself to a person. You are saying, I want to be in Christ, and I want Christ to be in me. We're talking about a faith that looks like duct tape and Jesus, right? It's like these two things together. This is not true for you. You are connecting yourself to this man. You are saying, everything I have is about this man. I owe everything to this man. That's what faith is. It's a full-fledged commitment, pledge to this man, saying, I want you to be in everything I do. I want you to be in everything I do. We brought this verse up before, but it, it applies now. John 6, 29, Jesus told them, this is the only work God wants from you. Try harder and be a better person. No, that's not what it says. This is the only work God wants from you. Be a really good husband and a sacrificial father. That sounds better. No, still not what he wants from you. This is the only God, uh, work God wants from you, to show up to church regularly and to give a ton. That's what the pastor wants from you, but not, 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 not God. This is the only work God wants from you. Believe. Isn't that crazy? Because I could, I could teach you some about Buddhism and Hinduism, Confucianism. The only work they want, well, it's a laundry list. I'll give you a book. There's a lot of works and a lot of stuff you're going to have to do in those religions. The only thing God wants from you is to believe him. Take him at his word. It's not by works that you are saved, but it takes some work to believe that you are saved, doesn't it? <laughs> that kind of full-fledged commitment to grace, man, it's hard to do in a world that operates in ungrace or disgrace. It reminds me of the Indiana Jones movie, one of my favorite series of all time, right? But there's that scene where he's having to cross that invisible bridge. You remember that? That huge chasm. And there's a bridge there, is there not? He just cannot see it. And so what does he have to do? He's got to take that first step of faith, believing that there is something there that just doesn't make sense, believing there's something that's going to catch him even when he might fall. And remember that scene, just great. he just kind of goes like this, and he lands on it. And then he goes back, he throws some rocks on it just to kind of say, okay, I, I, I want to believe it's there again later. That is faith. That is grace through faith, believing thinking, living, loving, giving, serving, like you are saved. Do you believe it? Because I think you'd be different if you really believed it. That brings us to the last sola, sola Cristo, in Christ alone. So you are saved by grace alone, through faith, this pledge to grace, and it's all about Jesus. Verses 13 through 22 but now in Christ Jesus, you who were once far away have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace, 
who's made the two groups one, has destroyed the barriers, the dividing walls of hostility, by setting aside in his flesh the law with his commands and regulations. Verse 17, Jesus came and preached peace to you who were far away, peace to those who were near. For through him we have access to the Father by one spirit. Consequently, you are no longer foreigners and strangers, but fellow citizens with God's people, members of his household. You are built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets with Christ Jesus himself, the chief cornerstone. In him, the whole building is joined together and rises to become a holy temple in the Lord. And in him, you too are being built together to become a dwelling in which God lives by his spirit. Let's walk through this text again real fast. I want you to pick up on a few things. But now it is in Christ Jesus you who are far away have been brought near by the blood of Jesus, for he is our peace. It was in his flesh the law and the commands were done away with. He came and preached peace to you. It's through him we have access to the Father. It continues on. Christ Jesus himself, he's the cornerstone of this whole new building. It is in him that we are being built up. Do you see what Paul's saying here? He's saying Jesus, Jesus, Jesus. It's Christ alone. He uses a lot of analogies and imagery here to talk about Jesus, but he's just t- trying to show you that Jesus is unique. He's superior. He's absolutely the only way you are saved. It was his blood that cleanses you, his sacrifice that saves you, his pain that heals you, his strength that empowers you, his foundation that builds you up. There is no one else that does that. There is nothing else that does that for you. There are a lot of people in this world, and my assumption is a lot of people in this room right now that think there are a lot of ways to heaven, and Jesus is one of them. We've just kind of chosen Jesus because we live in the West, and it's kind of what our culture believes in. Nothing could be further from the truth. There is one way, and it is Jesus Christ. He would not go through all of that if there were a bunch of other ways. It is sola Christo. It is only in Christ. It's only his blood. It's only his perfect life. It's only his death on the cross. It's only his resurrection. It's only his spirit. If you're going to try to get there by any other means, you're not going to get there. You with me? I don't want to lecture you. But if you are trying to get there by any other means, you will not end up there. I'm talking about life, talking about heaven, talking about eternity. It's sola Christo. It's only Christ. President Thomas Jefferson was traveling across the country one day on horseback when he and his group came across this river that was totally flooded over. High rains over the last couple of weeks had made the river totally extend beyond its banks. You could not cross it by foot, and if you weren't experienced, you really couldn't even cross it on horseback. Many folks were stuck on the one side of the river as Thomas Jefferson came through. One man in particular was stranded there for several days. He was running out of resources. And so the group asked, would you like us to try to take you across the river? He said, yes, I would love that. And he looked up and he asked Thomas Jefferson, would you, would you take me across the river, sir? So he jumped on the back of this man's horse. They went across to the other side, made it safely. As the stranger slid off the back of the saddle onto the ground, someone in the group asked, why, friend, why did you ask the president of the United States to take you across the river? The stranger was super apologetic, had no idea it was the president at all. He said, I'm so sorry. I, I, I was so assuming of me. I, I didn't mean to do that. I overstepped my bounds. But all I know, the man said, 
is that as, as I looked at all of your faces, you all had the look of no on your face. And this one man, his face said yes. This man's face said yes. That is true for you when it comes to getting across the chasm, the river, if you will, that exists between us and God, us and heaven, us and eternal life. There is only one who says yes to you. All others may try to get you across, they're going to fail. There is one man who has yes written on his face, actually has it written on his hands and his feet. There is one who said yes to you. Yes to living the perfect life. Yes to dying in your place. Yes to suffering the consequences of your disobedience. Yes to bridging the gap that you created. Yes to all of that. 2 Corinthians 1, all of God's promises are what to us in Christ? Yes. He had the yes face, didn't he? He can get you across. So can you summarize Lord of the Rings in a single line? I'm not sure you can. But can you summarize the entire biblical narrative in one line? I truly do think you can. You are saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. That is who you are. And I hope that this week, students in particular, as you go back to school, I hope that this will be your very identity because it changes everything. Let me pray for us and we'll get you out of here. God, we thank you for being an amazing God unlike all others. Help us today to live in the three solas of grace, faith, and Christ. Help us to know that off, uh, when we're left off by our own God, we are far worse off than we can even imagine. But help us to know, God, that you draw near to those who are gross and ungodly and dead, and you give them life and love and hope. We are that 15-year-old boy who deserves life in prison, if not the death penalty, and instead you adopt us and make us your own. You take us in as if we're your own children, loving us and blessing us in ways we can't even fully fathom. Help us to believe that. Help us to have faith that that's true. God, the world is going to tell us we've got to earn this. We've got to work for it. We've got to be better, do more, try harder. That's just not true. Help us just to believe that you are so good, so good to us. And help us to believe in Christ and Christ alone. Not our good works, not our church attendance, not how much we give, not how many we serve, but it's just Jesus. It's because of him, his life, his death, his resurrection, that now we get all of these promises, God. So help us to live by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. Make it so as we leave this room. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Thank you, friends. Have an amazing day. Don't forget your dollar in the bin on the way out. Be strong and courageous. God bless you guys.